The following episode contains elements that may be disturbing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, my beautiful humans? Welcome back or to the podcast that takes its silliness seriously. The Professionally Silly Podcast. We shoot the shit and discuss a variety of awesome paranormal experiences, true crime stories, and some interesting topics that I find online. It's your audible boo thing, Amber Smiles Jones, and if you're new here, you're going to enjoy yourself. Also, uh, make sure you guys check out the titles of my past episodes and enjoy the silly. So, alright, before we get into the show, it has been a busy week, okay? Your girl has been keeping busy and trying to stay out of trouble all right i've been filming videos like crazy for both my youtube channels which by the way i have a new paranormal blacktivity video coming your way this sunday and um, i'm super excited about it i tried a new app called scaranoia and it works like randonautica but more on the creepy paranormal side now the creators of the necrophonic app this is the app that i use that allows you to communicate with spirits making it so that you can hear them respond to you verbally it's really interesting so the creators of that app and the youtube channel hunting the dead with uh, jody dean created scaranoia together and i'm excited to share that experience with you you guys know i be on my paranormal now (laughs) <laughs> so be sure to subscribe to both my YouTube channels, the Professionally Silly channel and the Paranormal Blacktivity channel. Lots of fun to be had. The links are below in the show notes. So that's there. What else is going on in my life? Oh my God. So <laughs> the air conditioner on the second floor of my home is not working. That's where my bed is, my bedroom. So when we go to sleep at night, we just, the family just lays in their beds, cremating in in our sleep now. That's what we do. And um, I woke up in the middle of the night to pretty much spray water on my face, arms, and legs. See, the ceiling fan is on. And when that breeze hits my wet flesh, ooh, stop it. It feels amazing. So I, um, I went to the dollar store and I got this spray bottle that I use for my cat Samantha when she does something like jump on a counter or, or something like that when I want to get her down because I don't want to hit her so I just you know hit spray bottle on her you know <laughs> anyways I adjusted the spout from stream to spray and boom I'm cooled off instantly okay I um I've gone I've, I've started to revert back to Uh, the times when I was living in Los Angeles because it can get really hot there in the summer too and I lived in an old apartment building that had uh, no central air no air conditioning at all so in order to stay cool there sometimes you got to put your clothes in the freezer so I went back to doing that (laughs) I put damp items of clothing in the freezer to to cool it off (laughs) it works try it Put a damp shirt in the freezer for a few minutes and then put it on. It is the the most shocking, best feeling ever, especially during this heat wave that we all seem to be experiencing. Um, you know, because it's, it's hot as shit and I'm over it. Like all over the country, we all just getting well done for no reason. 
you know, but I'm, I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by the time you guys hear this episode, the repairman would have come and saved my entire family from cremating in our own homes. So, <laughs> but I know, I know the heat is coming guys. I know it's making everybody crazy. Let's, let's try our best not to become subjects of true crime podcasts because the heat got to us. Let's do everything we can. You know, because I heard there was a state, I want to say in the East Coast, that uh, the electrical wiring, like the sun had like burned through it. It was so hot. The electrical wiring was melting. You know, that's it's pretty dangerous. So everybody be safe. Stay hydrated. If you got a pool, clean that shit. Jump in. Okay, if you got a, 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 what do you call it? I wasn't say a fire hose. If you've got a fire hose, if you got a water hose or a a kiddie pool, man, do something. You know, just keep yourself, keep yourself cool. Everybody be safe out there. All right. All right. So let's go ahead and get on with the show, shall we? Let's do that. So last week we did an interesting episode about some creepy and interesting experiences that real estate agents and property managers have had. Now, if you haven't heard that episode, make sure you go ahead and check it out. It involved guns, ghosts, decomposing bodies, crack pipes, and serial killers. So, so much occurred, (laughs) y'all. There's just so much going on in that episode. Creepy real estate experiences. Make sure you go ahead and check that out. Today, this week, uh, we have a true crime episode. Now, I should warn you, this episode could trigger a few people, so listener discretion is definitely advised. Uh, We're going to dig deeper into an earlier episode that I did here on the Professionally Silly podcast, and uh, it was part one of a two-parter, horror movies inspired by true events. Now, I mentioned the movie The Strangers. That was one of the horror movies that I discussed that is actually inspired by true events. Remember that movie? God, the movie was scary as hell. That's the movie with um, the people, they've got like the, the creepy masks and they knock on the cabin door asking, is Tamara home? <laughs> and, you know, a young couple, you know, they're, they're going to a family vacation home for the weekend. And instead of having the sexy weekend that they wanted, they end up fighting for their lives as they're being stalked and tortured by masked intruders. It's a terrifying movie that was actually inspired by true events. And that true event was the Ketty Cabin Murders helped inspire this movie. So, yeah, The Strangers. Now, we touched briefly on this um, on the episode Horror Movies Inspired by True Events Part 1. And this was back in February 2020 uh, when I did that episode. So, And there's also a Part 2 as well. And each episode discusses three movies that were inspired by True Events. So you get technically six movies that we take a little tiny dive into. So uh, check it out. The links are down below in the show notes. But today, we're going to focus only on one, the Ketty Cabin Murders. We're going to focus on that. Now, if you want to hear a little bit about uh, the movie The Strangers, and you want to hear what I said uh, about that, about those episodes, you're going to want to go ahead and take a listen because it is, it it was, it's a very interesting episode. 
oh my god, there, there are a lot of horror movies out there that are inspired by actual, real-life experiences and events. And those are the ones that are usually the best ones. Those are the ones when you, you're in a theater, it's a dark theater, and you, the, te- the show's about to, the, the, the movie's about to start, and then you see a black screen, and then a white font comes on, and it says, this story is inspired by true events. And then you're like, fuck yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> but I really do think that the those those two episodes that I did about the uh, movies inspired by true events, they were definitely on my top 10 list of my favorite episodes that I've done on this podcast. And <laughs> I'm not going to touch on... Um, on every last detail of this crime. So if I don't mention something that you know about, you know, involving the crime, please don't lose your shit. The world's still spinning and you're going to be okay. But before we get into today's episode, let me remind you that if you guys have any fun, scary, embarrassing, funny, creepy stories, what have you, or experiences, and you want to share them, send them in. Maybe you came across some random ass free money. Uh, maybe you had a crappy uh, first date. Maybe you were at home and you decided to renovate and you found a diary in the wall. I don't know. Send it in. <laughs> Email me your experiences and your interesting stories at itsprofessionallysilly at gmail.com. And that information is down in the show notes as well. I do discuss a lot of interesting topics here, so you can come in and join the silly. Just go ahead and check out the titles to my past episodes and and you'll see what I mean. (laughs) So uh, since I got you here, make sure you go ahead and check out the at It's Pro Silly Twitter page and Instagram page uh, or also our new Professionally Silly podcast group on Facebook. So all the uh, all the social media stuff for this podcast is going to be down below in the show notes. Make sure you follow and join in on the conversation. I would also love it if you guys would uh, show your support for this podcast by leaving a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform that you're using. And thank you so much for coming back every week with me to hang out. It means the world to me. Okay, so let's talk murder. It's about that time. Let's get the show on the road. Well, I guess it's time for another true crime episode that ends in murder. As you guys know, I um, I usually don't do true crime episodes where people die. You know, every now and then we'll have a, a few murderers, a couple of serial killers here and there. Um, but I like to focus on the true crime where everybody makes it out alive because it's just more fun to, to talk about sometimes, you know, because the world is already so heavy. And there's already 18 million true crime uh, podcasts out there, so... Every now and then I like to join in <laughs> in, their, in their race to make true crime content. I love it. I love it because I, I, I am a true crime addict. And uh, it's fun to have a podcast that's so uh, that has a variety of different topics and subjects that I can discuss. And uh, I find them all very interesting. Anyways, the case that we're going to discuss is unsolved till this day, the Kitty Cabin murders. So let's go back in time to the early 80s, 1981 to be exact, music was changing, fashion was changing, and of course I was born in the 80s, so, ah, the 80s, 
it wasn't 81. I'm not that old. Goodness. <laughs> I can just hear every listener who was born uh, before me. You bitch. <laughs> Anyways, um, so Michael Jackson's Thriller album came out, you know, followed by his Bad album. That's the name of the album for, for young listeners there. The album itself was not bad. The name of it was. <laughs> Wait, you guys know what I'm saying. Jeez. Anyways, we all danced and sang along to the entire album, and I'm sure still do to this day. Prince's Purple Rain and uh, When Doves Cry made their debut. Hip-hop was doing its damn thing. Public Enemy, Run DMC, NWA, Grandmaster Flash, and more exploded in this decade. Unfortunately, we lost Bob Marley and Marvin Gaye in this decade as well. You know, the movies E.T., Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Top Gun, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, all debuted and knocked our socks off in the 80s. MTV joined the scene in the U.S. in, 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 uh, in 1981. The Golden Girls TV show was born. Big hair and mullets took over the scene. Acid-washed jeans and leg warmers were the craze. The 80s... The 80s had it all, y'all, ah, including me. Mm, yeah, you're all you're all welcome. <laughs> and now, now that we got a uh, you know a chance for me to set the scene and reminisce on one of the best decades ever, ever because that's when I was born, it is time to get to the story here. Now, in a rural town of Keddie, California, in Plumas County, a quadruple homicide occurred. Now, this place is definitely the kind of place where you would probably film a 90s type horror movie. It had that Crystal Lake vibe, if you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Anyways, it's a small town, and when I say small, I mean small. According to Wikipedia in 2010, Keddie, California had a population of 66. Yes, 66 people. And uh, that was just in 2010. It, that wasn't really that long ago, you know. The case is actually not as, excuse me, this case is actually uh, not as confusing as it sounds. And as I share with you, and I'm saying this if you've already, if you're coming into this podcast and you know a little bit, a little bit about the Kitty Cabin murders. As I share this with you, the evidence and statements made about this case, you may wonder why the case is still a cold case and unsolved. And you will soon find out that the police department has a lot to do with why that is. So let's go ahead and get into it. Summer of 79, we have uh, Glenna Susan Sharp, a.k.a. Sue, and that's what we'll, we'll uh, call her Sue for the rest of the episode, separated from her ancient husband, James Sharp. He was a very abusive person. And she had had enough of him and his abusive bullshit. So she left her home in Connecticut and decided to take all five of her children. Yep, five of her children and relocate to Northern California. Now, Sue's brother, Don, lived there. So, you know, she wasn't completely alone. She rented a trailer for them to stay in and then later moved into house and into a house, cabin 28 and Keddy. California. Uh, it was like an old cabin resort. Lots of hiking and fishing was done there. Um, there was a time 
that Keddie, that the Keddie cabins was super successful as a resort destination. But in the 80s, the cabins are pretty much uh, gone into disarray and it no longer attracted the crowds that it once did. Okay, so Keddie, California used to have a little uh, little cabin resort where you can go and do all those lovely things. But unfortunately, business went downhill and uh, the owners decided to go ahead and rent them out just low income housing uh, for families. It was a it was a, a, a woody rural 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 rural. That's a hard word. Rural. <laughs> that sounds silly rural area and kind of secluded okay it's the kind of place where where you gotta chop wood to stay warm you know what i'm saying just <laughs> just think old campgrounds okay and that's that's what this place looked like so anyways this was supposed to be a temporary residence she had sue had all five of her children with her her son john who was 15 her daughter sheila who was 14 12-year-old Tina, her other daughter, and her two young sons, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was 5. Now, I, I can't imagine moving halfway across the country from Connecticut to a rural area with only 66 people in it or whatever. I'm not sure how many people were there in the 80s, but I can't imagine it was that much more. And uh, it, it must have been quite the change and to move cross-country with five children, that's a lot. Single mom, she's doing a lot, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, like I said, so Sue was a single mother with five kids doing everything she could do to give them a good life. She was she was able to receive food stamps and was on welfare. You know, her husband was in the, her, well, excuse me, her ex-husband, her abusive piece of shit, ain't shit husband, was in the Navy, so the Navy gave her like 250 bucks, you know? She was, she was on welfare and was uh, even able to enroll in a federal education program that was able to grant her money so she could attend classes at the local community college. Now, she was doing the best that she could, but, you know, she was also kind of a bit of a loner. You know, she wasn't very good at making friends, and soon she kind of sort of kept to herself. And because of this, there were rumors floating around accusing her of being a drug dealer or sleeping with lots of men for money, you know, things like that. She did date a few men, but she was single and that's all right. Who cares? You know, you know, she wasn't doing anything wrong. You know, she worked hard and dreamed that one day she would be able to own a small business and buy a nice size house for her and her children, you know. Now, everything, everything for this family changed on April 11th, 1981. Everything for this family changed on April 11th, 1981. Now, Sue's oldest son, John, who was was 15, excuse me, uh, was with his best friend, 17-year-old Dana Wingate. Uh, Dana's a boy, just had a unisex name. And uh, they decided to go to the next town over in Quincy, California. 
John and Dana ended up staying the night at John's cabin later, cabin 28, that night after returning from Quincy, California. Now, Sheila's daughters, excuse me, (laughs) Sheila, uh, Sue's daughters, Sheila and Tina, were at the cabin next door playing with the Seabolt family's children in cabin 27 watching TV. All right. Now, Tina, who was 12 years old, made her way home around 10 p.m. Now, mind you, these cabins are really close together. Everybody seems to know everybody in that area. It was kind of a close-knit community, okay? It wasn't a lot of people in town uh, to begin with, all right? So uh, Tina makes her way home around 10 p.m., and Sheila decides to stay the night in Cabin 27 with the C- in the, at the Seabolt's residence, in uh, cabin 27, Ricky and Greg were home with Sue. All right. Now there was just, there was a lot of ins and outs of the, of cabin 28 all day, which was not very unusual. You know, things were very different back then. People felt more free, you know, there was no access to what's going on around the world 24 7 no cell phones no social media no 24-hour news no idea that the darkness could fall at any time people just lived like serial killers didn't exist a lot of people didn't even lock their doors you know it was a good time (laughs) i guess you know i guess sometimes ignorance really can be blissful you know because we live in a time where we now know about the darkness and the evil, you know, that we didn't know about because it's in our face and it's happening every day all over the world. There was a time where we weren't aware, (laughs) you know, it's, I don't know, sometimes ignorance is blissful, I guess. Anyways, Sue told Ricky and Greg that it was okay for the friend, for they had a friend, 12-year-old Justin Eason uh, could spend the night. Now, Justin lived with his parents Uh, His mother, Marilyn Smart, and his stepfather, Martin Smart, their family had just moved to Keddie as well, and they lived in cabin 26, okay? And so uh, the Sharp family were in cabin 28, the Seabolt family was in cabin 27, and the Smart family was in cabin 26, all right? And none of these cabins were really that far together, I mean, uh, that far apart, excuse me. So everyone is pretty much all over the place this night but like I said before people felt safer at that time you know the kids in the neighborhood they're about the same age they were all friends it was just a a close-knit community like I said earlier now here's where things get to get uh, start to get a little uh oh okay on April 12th around 7 a.m. in the morning Sheila headed back home from the Seabolt family's cabin and that's cabin 27 And just, I want to warn you guys about it, about this, because it's about to get real. All right. Now, because she, because what Sheila found was incredibly horrifying, you you guys, this, I can't imagine being 14 years old and, and coming across something like this. I, I can't imagine being the age I am and coming across something like this. So what she found was incredibly horrifying. She walked into cabin 28, her home, and found her mother, Sue, her older brother, John, and his best friend, Dana, dead inside the cabin. 
There was blood everywhere. Now, Sue's two younger sons, five-year-old Greg and 10-year-old Ricky, along with their new friend Justin, were all found in the back bedroom, luckily asleep and unharmed. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, lucky for them, they were completely, they were completely unharmed, but it's, it's, if you think about it, it's just, I'm talking about it now. It's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Like, what are the odds that anyone could sleep through three people being murdered? And, and you'll see what I mean soon. Um, 12-year-old Tina, of course, unfortunately, was nowhere to be found. Remember, she came home at 10 p.m. that night, and she just vanished. No one knew where she had gone. And before you think that you just solved this case, no, Tina was not the killer. <laughs> okay, the, the, the 12-year-old did not kill three people on her own while also committing the most silent, savage murder in that decade. Now, remember, Greg, Ricky, and Justin were all still asleep when the murder occurred. Now, the, but the crazy thing is, is that the crime scene was just horrifying. There was blood all over the walls, the floor, the furniture, even, even the ceiling, all over the ceiling. There's no way that this was a quiet crime. How do they sleep through that? Anyways, the bodies of the two boys, her 15-year-old brother John and his best friend Dana, uh, who was 17, were bound together by electrical wires and tape. Okay, Under a bloody yellow blanket lied Sheila's mother's body. Now, Sheila runs out of the cabin screaming for help, which, fucking I can't blame her for that. And she heads back to cabin 27, where she was hanging out with the Seabolt family, okay? Unfortunately, they did not have a phone, so they went to the lodge to call the police. Now, while the, while the Seabolt family and Sheila waited for police, they decided to go back over to the cabin to look for her younger brothers, who happened to have their friend Justin stay over. They were hoping that every, you know, maybe somebody was still alive and they could help them because at this time she didn't know that they were okay. Now, in the back bedroom, they found Justin, Rick, and Greg, and all three boys were still asleep and they managed to wake the boys up by knocking on the bedroom window and got them out of the cabin that way, exiting through the window because they didn't, they wanted to spare the boys the gruesome crime scene. That's just blood all over the place that's just not something you want a child to see you know it's just again it's super bizarre that the boys didn't hear anything and they slept through the entire murder it's not like this cabin was huge or the rooms were soundproof we're talking about a two bedroom cabin that happens to have a basement with a um, a separate entrance uh that's like a kind of like a a basement apartment sort of kind of thing. So it, it's really not that big. I would just think uh, by just, I don't know, by looking at the crime scene and how horrific it was. I mean, there, there was blood all over the place. Even the ceiling was covered in it. And it's hard to believe that this murder was a silent one. And judging by the weapons that were left behind, which we'll get into that in a second, it makes me think that it was more than one person that committed this crime. So you have a lot of people in such a small space and those kids didn't hear shit. That's crazy. All right. So, <laughs> um, that's just where I am right now. Deputy Hank Clement was one of the first to arrive on scene. 
he opened the front door and he saw the bodies on the green carpeted floor. Now, this crime scene was beyond gruesome, as I said before. He saw that all three victims were bound with electrical, with electrical and medical tape, along with electrical cords. Now, John, he was the first body found closest to the door. Then Dana, who was uh, bound, uh, whose legs were bound uh, along with John's, they were kind of tied up together. And then Sue, who was found furthest away from the door. They had all suffered blunt force trauma from being attacked with a hammer. All three of them had been stabbed numerous times. Now, to attack people with hammers and, and knives and things like that it seems to be a very personal attack to me. It's up close. It's traumatic. It's, they knew that they knew them, it feels like. And nothing, nothing from the crime scene was stolen, so robbery certainly was not a motive. This definitely made police think that this was personal, planned, and deliberate. And I, I, they might be right. I agree. Now, the police found a butcher knife covered in blood and a bent steak knife and a claw hammer. Now, that steak knife bent because it was used with so much aggression and force. Kind of like when you, back before, you know, they made ice cream that was easy to get out, but kind of like when you try to use a spoon on ice cream that's like frozen solid, it can cause the spoon to bend at the neck. Kind of like that, okay? Now, Dana and John's ankles were linked together and bound. Sue Sharp was found lying very close to the sofa on her side, and she was naked from the waist down. She seemed to be uh, the one whose body had the most trauma because she was stabbed in her chest and her face and beaten and um, beaten in the head with a blunt object. And it, and, uh, it wasn't with the hammer either. It was actually later discovered to be the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun because a small piece of the gun had broken off during the attack and uh, that was used to identify the type of gun. But to be hit in the face or in the head with the butt of a gun so hard that a piece of it flies off, that's pretty savage if you ask me. Now, she, Sue, was gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear uh, was, was shoved into her mouth and then tape was placed over it to keep it in place. Police did not find any evidence that she was sexually assaulted, but um, I kind of disagree with that. Maybe in the 80s, they didn't really take that sort of thing very seriously or didn't understand, but, you know, she was the only person whose pants were, you know, she was naked from the waist down. Uh, that right there seems like evidence of sexual assault to me, but I'm not a cop. All right. Anyways, it, it, uh, but the, as the investigation continues, a lot of police officers do think and investigators, uh, investigators do think that she was sexually assaulted and could have been, um, the main target because of all the damage that was done to her body. Uh, it is later thought that she was being attacked and the two men, the two young men, John and Dana walked in on uh, on the fight or on the altercation that was going on on the assault and the offenders or if or the offender or offenders now had two other people to deal with. 
Now, unfortunately, all of their throats were slit. This was a torturous massacre. Make no mistake. Now, it was it was thought that there may have been another hammer that was used in the, in the attack, but only one hammer was found at the crime scene. Now, this is why I said earlier the police assumed uh, that there were that there was more than one attacker that committed this crime because uh, because of all the evidence showing that there were so many different weapons that were used in this murder. Now, it appeared that John's cause of death was uh, a blunt force trauma and uh, and he also was stabbed to death. He his friend Dana seemed to have been manually strangled and it takes a lot of force and time uh, to kill someone with your bare hands. Now, of course, we can't forget about 12-year-old Tina who was missing. So a lot was going on at this time and it was thought that she was kidnapped. Now, this case, this case was just all over the place. The police definitely had the work cut out for them. Because of Tina's kidnapping, the FBI are now involved. Oh, and as we get as we talk about this case even further, you're going to you're going to really hate the police that were involved in this particular case or maybe you already hate them in general, but <laughs> I'm giving you a clear reason as to why this bunch of cops that I'm talking about specifically really fucking sucked at their job. <laughs> just wait like we we're just getting started so James Sharp Sue's ex-husband was their first suspect that abusive asshole all right which made complete sense because he was an abusive asshole okay and Sue took all five of their children and left now perhaps he wanted to get back at her for leaving him but James had an alibi and he was across the country at the time of the murder Next step was John's friend, Dana Wingate, the 17-year-old who was with them, uh, who, who, who was killed alongside with them. Now, they think that Dana could have been uh, the reason that the family was killed. Now, it was rumored around town that, you know, Dana was kind of a hard-ass, what they would consider a, a bad apple, if you will. And it's said that Dana stole LSD from drug dealers. And perhaps those drug dealers tracked him down and made him pay the ultimate price. But if that were the case, there was never any evidence to prove that. Okay. Now about 4,000 man hours were spent investigating this case. There were so many different avenues to go down, so many different scenarios to X out. It was just a lot going on. Now next on the suspect list was the Smart family who lived in cabin 26. And I'm talking about Justin Smart, one of the young boys that slept through this brutal attack. There were um, his parents, they're thinking uh, his household could have had something to do with this. Now, there were rumors that there was a love triangle, ooh, wow, wow, all right, going on between Maryland 
at Marilyn and Martin Smart that involved Sue Sharp, okay? Now, Marilyn is Justin's mother, and uh, Martin is Justin's stepfather, okay? Sue even told Marilyn that she should leave Martin because he's an asshole, okay? He seemed a little off, all right? Not to mention that the Smart family also had a house guest. Yeah, the Smart family had a house guest during the time of the murder, and his name was John Bo Bubedi. I don't think I said his name right, but eh, I don't really care. Anyways, Martin, <laughs> Martin had just met this man, a, we'll call him Bo, just met this man a few weeks earlier at a VA hospital where they were both receiving treatments for PTSD. Now, Marilyn, you know, uh, Marilyn, uh, Justin's mother, said that Bo had a little crush on Susan. He even tried to hit on her a couple of times, but Susan was not at all interested. She turned him down every single time. Now, as we know, unfortunately, there are a lot of men out there who do not take rejection well, and they lash out physically, violently, emotionally, what have you, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of women do lose their lives uh, due to these narcissistic assholes who have the ego, the egos the size of the damn planets, like I can't believe that a woman would tell them no. It's, uh And, you know, at one point, there was a time you could kill a woman, and it didn't even matter. And those crimes were not really investigated, if at all, you know. And unfortunately, that's still a problem that we have today. A woman's life just does not seem to mean as much as a man's life in a lot of these domestic violence uh, cases, especially if that man is a prominent figure of some sort. It's just, and you know, there was a time where husbands could actually get away with murder for, uh, of killing their wives. Like that was a thing. It was, uh, it was legal in some places to kill your wife. Oh, don't get me started. Jesus. Fuck patriarchy. Just like they say, like my ladies on wine and crime, fuck patriarchy. Patriarchy can suck a dick. That's how I feel about it. Okay. So (laughs) let's get back to this. Now I got some interesting information that I want to share with you. Get this. Martin and Bo, our, our VA guys, were both interviewed together in the same room. Yeah, the sheriff decided it was a great idea for, for two suspects to be interviewed together in the same room. They, now, at this time, they both claimed to have been with Marilyn at a bar that's called Keddie's Back Door. Now, first of all, that's a very interesting name, Keddie's Back Door. Second of all, it's extremely weird and questionable that the police would question two suspects in the same room at the same time. Now, usually police protocol is they would separate you, uh, both suspects, to see if your answers match. Okay, that's like a little thing that they do. Now, Martin even admits that he lost a hammer and he has not been able to find it for a few days. Huh. So, could that hammer have been involved with this quadruple homicide? I don't know. 
Remember when I said there were the police thought there were two different hammers used during this murder, but they only could find one. Ah, seems like a clue. Okay, um, let me see here. I kind of lost my spot. And Martin was even friends with the sheriff, which makes sense because this was, as I said before, an extremely small town. So both Martin and Bo were given a polygraph test, which is a lie detector test, but polygraphs are not really considered, you know, evidence, not good evidence, meaning that the results of them are rarely used in court. They both passed it, but that, that could mean nothing. If you're a sociopath and you don't have emotions or feelings, poly, you might just pass your polygraph. Or if you're super nervous or you have anxiety, you could fail the polygraph. It's just not an exact science and it's a good reason why it's not often used as legitimate evidence. Okay. Now, Marilyn, Martin, and Bo went to Ketty's back door for a few drinks, but Martin was annoyed with the music that was playing at the bar. So they all decided to leave and they went back to the Smarts house around 11 p.m. However, Martin and Bo ended up leaving the cabin for a second time that night and, uh, and Marilyn decided to stay behind. Now this, this is the strange part, okay? They decided to go back to the bar, but when they went back to the bar, both men, Martin and Bo, entered wearing completely different outfits. And I mean, completely different. Okay, Ketty's back door, this bar, it's a dive bar. Okay, you're not, you're just going to wear whatever the fucking go. But this time, Martin and Bo, they came in wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses. What? <laughs> now, in a dive bar, that's going to grab the attention of everyone there. So ask yourself this. Did they change their clothes to grab, you know, because they wanted to grab the attention of everyone there, you know, to use their, to establish themselves an alibi? Did, I don't know. Did they change their clothes because their, uh, their other clothes were covered in blood? Or did they put on these extremely noticeable outfits inside of a dive bar to help them establish their alibi? There are a lot of questions. What in the world is going on with this case? This case has, has so many twists and turns. I feel like I'm on an informative roller coaster. <laughs> now, of course, the sheriff at the time, Martin's bestie, uh, decided to clear both men of any suspicion of murder. Now, it, it's time to interview the three boys in the back that were uh, found in the back bedroom that slept through this entire ordeal. Rick and Greg say that they slept through the entire thing and they didn't see anything, you know. And at first, so did Justin Smart. He said the same exact thing. But later, he said he dreamed about the killings. So they decided to put him under hypnosis to help him remember what he could have witnessed. Now, could Justin have survived this attack because his family didn't want him dead? and could not kill his friends in front of him, perhaps that could be something to think about because they did allow Justin to live. Or maybe they just didn't know that the children there, I don't know. Like I said, this case has a lot of holes, but at the same time, 
It's got a lot of plugs too. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about Justin and, and his supposed dream. Now he said he, he dreamed the details of the murders. He said he was, he was awakened to sounds coming from the living room while he was asleep in the bedroom with Greg and Rick. Okay, now he got out of bed and went to see what was going on. When he poked his head out the door, he saw Sue with two men. One of the men carried a hammer and a pocket knife and used the knife to, to stab Sue in the chest. He said that the noise that uh, the noise that he heard most of also woken up Tina as well as she went to the living room to see what was going on. And one of the men grabbed Tina, went outside and returned without her. Justin was also able to describe both men and a sketch artist was able to create a composite sketch of both these men based on his testimony. Now, one man, one man had a mustache with short hair and the other was clean shaven with long hair. But both these men wore sunglasses. Now, I'll be sure to share the composite sketch on the podcast Instagram at It's Pro Silly. So you're going to want to go ahead and check that out. Or you can just go ahead and Google Ketty Cabin Murders and go to images. You can see the same things that I saw. Now, I'm, I'm not... I'm not uh, 100% positive on how helpful hypnosis can be in the court of law. One, I'm not a hypnotist or a lawyer, so I don't know. But <laughs> I'm assuming it's probably just as helpful as results from a polygraph in a court of law. Neither of these things are really considered great evidence because there's so many unknowns to both these fields. Okay, But I will say this. A lot of things that he was saying while he was under hypnosis sounded almost dead on with the evidence that was found on the scene. And it's a possibility that he really did see this crime and his mind was trying to protect him and tell him that he was only dreaming it because a lot of the details matched the evidence. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but sometimes when people experience traumatic events, they tend to black out, black it out, like they don't remember it. Their mind, their their mind is trying to protect them from that trauma. Perhaps his mind was trying to protect him by telling him that he only dreamed, about, he only dreamed about it. Again, not a therapist, not a psychologist, not any of those things. I'm just a podcaster. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, everything was, all these details were, were matching the evidence. And also, don't forget, Martin and Bo were both at, at the bar wearing sunglasses at night along with their three-piece suits. So to me, it seems insane that Bo and Martin were no longer suspects uh, of this crime. The evidence seems to be pointing directly at them in neon bright-ass lights, but when you're buddies with the sheriff, you know, I guess you can get away with anything. Okay, so the sketch, uh, the composite sketch was sent out to the public, but there weren't many responses to it. And when you see this, this picture, the composite sketch of both these men, they, 
they could be anybody, especially in the 80s. Okay. Uh, they just like random ass white men in sunglasses. But, but, but uh, both men, okay, decided to, uh, uh, there were two men, excuse me, that decided to take credit for the murders. Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. They were both convicted on several counts of murder. They were both considered serial killers. Now, Henry Lee Lucas's story is very interesting. We're going to have to do an episode on him alone. That dude is... <sighs> Anyways, they both claimed to have murdered over 100 people, but there was no evidence to support Henry killing more than 11 people or Otis killing more than six. Okay, we're going to have to do a deeper dive into their crimes at some point. Now, I just thought that he just, well, it is thought that uh, Henry Lee Lucas just kind of enjoyed the attention that he would get and he would do anything and say anything to get it. It's also uh, when he was being interviewed about the murders that he confessed that he confessed to sometimes the, the detectives would bring him milkshakes and things like that. And he just enjoyed the attention. So it is thought that a lot of the murders that he claimed to commit, that he confessed to, he actually was not responsible for. Now, like I said, we're going to have to do an episode on this guy because his story is also all over the place. Uh, but anyways, both of their confessions, Henry Lee, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, they were ruled out, okay? On April 22nd, 1984, three years after the murder of, three years after the murder uh, and Tina's disappearance, a man was walking around looking for bottles to recycle and came across a human skull at Camp 18. Now, this is near Feather Falls next to Butte County. This is about a hundred miles away from Ketty, California. Now, along with the human skull was a blue jacket, a child's blanket, empty surgical tape dispenser, and Levi jeans. Okay. Now he comes across this and he, of course he calls the cops and they begin their investigation to identify who the skull belonged to. And here's the weirdest part. Okay. Not long after they find these items, they received an anonymous phone call with a tip. Now, the person who called was saying that these items and the remains belonged to Tina Sharp. Now, the tip was not only correct, but how would they have known that? The details were, the details were not released to the press. And this is three years after the crime occurred. And this anonymous caller actually says everything belonged to Tina using her actual name. How did they know? Now, there are definitely more questions than answers involving this case. And this case is a cold case, but police are still trying to solve it till this day. There is no statute of limitations for homicide. So anyone could be charged at any time regarding this case. In 1996, Robert Joseph Silvera Jr., uh, who was also known as the boxcar killer, an American serial killer, could have also been responsible for these murders. He would ride freight trains and he would kill the people who were on board with him. Now, he confessed to killing 28 people along with the Ketty murders. 
No evidence was found to prove this confession. The, rain, the railroad tracks actually weren't very far from the Kitty cabins, in particular cabin 28. So it is possible, it was super possible, but it wasn't proven because the boxcar killer was actually in prison for Grand Theft Auto at the time of the murders. So it wasn't him. And we're talking about a time people just like to confess the shit that they didn't do because they want to get the notoriety. They want to have the most kills and uh, you know how serial killers are. So <laughs> now in 2004, they decided to demolish cabin 28. There was a documentary done on the murders in 2008 and Marilyn Smart claimed that she always suspected her husband, Martin, and his friend, Bo. Now, she said around 2 a.m. on April 12th, that is the, the morning that they found the bodies in, in cabin 28, she said around 2 a.m. on April 12th, she woke up and saw the two men, meaning Bo and Ma her husband, Martin, saw that the two men were burning something in the wood stove. Not to mention, shortly after the murders, Martin left Ketty, California, and drove to Reno, Nevada. There, he sent the letter to his wife, Marilyn, that included this. I'm going to read you a small quote, but there he sent several letters. Uh, it was, it, it's kind of like he was begging for his wife to love him. It was really pathetic. Anyways, um, it says, and I quote, I paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives what the fuck okay now that sounds like a confession to me i guess but maybe it's being taken out of context i don't know but timing is everything if you ask me so Marilyn decides to turn in this letter to police but unfortunately the letter was overlooked and was not included in the investigation now remember when i told you the police fucked up this case we're about you're about to see what the fuck i'm talking about because the police dropped the ball on this case all right now uh, Marilyn, not only did she turn in the letters that her husband uh, sent her, she even found a bloody jacket in the basement and, uh, and turned this over to the police as well. But once again, the police fucked up and the jacket was not entered into evidence. Then there's more. Oh my God. Then later, a therapist that Martin was seeing allegedly admitted to uh to the murders of sue and tina martin admitted to his therapist about the murders but claimed and i quote i didn't have anything to do with the boys so he's saying he killed sue and he killed tina i also believe that martin possibly could have sexually assaulted sue as well because she was found naked from um from the bottom down okay next she was half naked from the bottom down and Tina, we can't, we don't really know much about that because we only found her skeletal remain, actually just her skull and a few other items. Okay. Now, does this mean that his friend Bo killed the boys? Perhaps. Now, he also told his therapist that Tina was killed so that she could not identify him because she witnessed the entire thing. Now, that's the part that kind of confuses me. Because that seems to be the reason why John and Dana were killed. But they were killed on site at the crime scene. But Tina, 
Tina was the only person that they removed from the cabin and no one ever saw again. And the only reason that I can assume that these men would take away a 12 year old girl by herself was probably because they also sexually assaulted her as well. But again, that can't be proved. That's not something that, um, they were able to be able to know for sure because the only thing that they found of Tina was her skull and a few items. But Martin, unfortunately, or actually maybe fortunately, because he sounds like a, like a murderous asshole. He died in cancer. He died of cancer, excuse me, in Portland, Oregon in June, 2000. Bo died in Chicago in 1988. So he died, you know, uh, the same decade that these murders occurred. Now, in 2016, there were a couple of breaks in the case that made the Plumas County Police Department think that they were getting closer to solving it. On March 24th, 2016, there was a guy who was looking for his wedding ring at, the, at a pond that was near the Ketty Resort entrance. He instead found a hammer. And the hammer's description matched the hammer that Martin Smart claimed was missing a few days after the murder. Now, investigators believe that this is the second hammer that was used in the quadruple homicide in cabin 28. But I cannot imagine that there is much evidence or DNA or anything on that hammer after it was left in water for over 25 years. I don't know. But I'm not, look, I can tell you all the things that I'm not a scientist, DNA analysis, <laughs> none of these things. I'm just a podcaster. <laughs> but man, I gotta say, it really sounds like Martin and Bo are the ones responsible for the for these gruesome murders. Now, the new sheriff of Plumas County, Sheriff Hagwood, uh, or Hagwood, said, and I quote, okay. You could take someone just out of the academy and they, they would have done a better job. Now, clearly, <laughs> this new sheriff was not satisfied with the work of the previous sheriff or those officers that they didn't put into the case. Sheriff Hagwood was about 16 years old at the time of the murder. And this case was mishandled from the get-go. So maybe he thought when he was a kid, I'm going to grow up to be a cop. I'm going to solve these murders. I don't know. Maybe it inspired him. I have no idea. Now, in 2018, investigators start, uh, stated that DNA evidence could be recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene, and it did match a living suspect. But Martin died in the year 2000, but perhaps they had help. I definitely think that the crime was committed by more than one person. I, I stand, I stand by that. Okay. But perhaps the DNA on that tape is from someone who sold them the tape, but they may be able to, I do have identified who purchased, who purchased it from them. It doesn't mean that the person uh, whose fingerprint is on that tape is the killer or was a part of the crime. They, that just means they touched it. Okay. They were near it. So Anyways, at this point, anything is possible, okay? The Plumas County Sheriff's Department claim that they are actively investigating six suspects for this case. Inside an old box of evidence, one of the investigators came across an audio tape 
of the anonymous phone call. Now, they told investigators that the human skull that they found was Tina. Remember that, uh, that anonymous phone call that I told you about earlier? Remember that? This audio tape was actually inside an unopened evidence bag, meaning that the initial investigators didn't even bother listening to the recording to investigate who made the anonymous call. Again, the police fucked up. But again, I also think that the sheriff at that time was looking out for his buddy. Okay. Now it's even rumored that they kept all the evidence in a freezer, but then someone happened to turn the freezer off. Huh? Wasn't that a little quinky dink? Now it definitely seems to me that the sheriff uh, that was in charge at the time, Martin's close personal bestie, did everything he could to throw off this investigation to save his friend. Now, this is just a theory that I have. I don't want to be sued. <laughs> this is my theory. None of this is, has been proven just yet. Now, there is actually still a $5,000 reward for any leads that lead to an arrest and prosecution. Okay. Now, the police the police that are currently working on this case seem to be very confident that they will have it solved very soon. They are quoted in saying there are persons of interest still living who knew or participated in this crime and should now be worried. That's a strong quote to make. Now to this day, Sheila Sharp, who was 14 at the time of the murders, when she discovered the body of her mother, her brother, and her brother's best friend is still working with law enforcement and the media to keep her family's case alive. Now, I <sighs> this case was a tough one. Okay, I usually don't cover true crime stories that involve children, uh, you know, being injured, but this case is still open. And as someone who has a who's a true crime addict, I gotta say, I, and, and I would say somewhat decent human being. <laughs> That's how I would describe myself. I, I do feel that I have a responsibility to use a small platform that I have to bring this this uh, this case to the attention to as many people as I can. And because I do discuss true crime on this podcast, I decided that this episode was necessary. So if anyone listening to this podcast episode has any information regarding the Ketty Cabin murders, please contact the Plumas County Sheriff Department. You can visit their website at plumascounty.us and all of their contact information is on that site. I'll definitely be touching uh, more on true crime cases that are actively being worked in future episodes of this podcast. And I definitely would like to start focusing on crimes of color as well. I'm sure many of you are aware or you may not be aware, but there are a lot of cases involving black women and indigenous women who have disappeared and the media is not covering these cases. Police don't seem to give a shit. So now it has become the job of true crime podcasters to get the word out on this case, on these cases. And I, I tell you this, I do believe that uh, the podcast Serial once they got that case, uh, that podcast going, got everybody talking, the case got reopened, things are being done, people are talking about it, theories are being thrown out, it, they're starting to take it more seriously. So, you know, if you are a podcaster out there, especially if you're doing true crime, keep doing what you're doing, because we're making a difference. I, I really do uh, truly believe that. 
Now, I, I think that it's important that we all work together to keep our community safe and help those who deserve justice receive it. Well, this case was extremely exhausting to research because there were so many twists and turns in it. It was hard to keep up. Some websites told me different information than other websites. And then the same goes for the podcast and podcast episodes and YouTube videos that I watched to gather the information for this case. Now, if there is anything that you can take from this podcast episode, it's don't live in the cabins in the woods. Don't go there. Shit always goes down in places like that for some reason. Don't do that. Also, uh, to all the murderers out there who have not been caught, don't think that your crime has been forgotten. It just takes one good person, one good piece of evidence, and your ass is grass. Professionally silly life rules people. Now, I, I want to take a second to cite my sources for this particular episode. Obviously, Wikipedia. Okay, that's my number one go-to for everything. And if you can go to the Wikipedia homepage and donate a couple of dollars to the site, that'd be great. It is a nonprofit site and your donation will go to the maintenance of the site, the servers, the bandwidth, and about 400 staff and contractors who support the variety of uh, information that keeps that site alive. I donate to the site a couple of dollars every other month or so. And I feel like I got to pay my dues because I, I overuse Wikipedia. <laughs> Thank you to medium.com, thoughtco.com, and plumasnews.com. I also want to shout out the podcast that I listened to in order to help me research this topic. The Morbid Podcast, the Hollywood Crime Scene Podcast, the Killer Instinct Podcast, And uh, last but definitely not least, the Murder Squad podcast featuring retired cold case investigator Paul Holes, who actually helped investigate this case. Yeah, was actually on the case, as well as uh, investigative journalist Billy Jensen. Now, I, I got a lot of bonus information from the Murder Squad podcast because of Paul's involvement in this case. And I also want to shout out, of course, uh, the BuzzFeed Unsolved Network YouTube channel, along with the Kendall Ray YouTube channel. As you can tell, uh, or as you just heard, a lot of research and time went into this podcast episode. (laughs) Soup's glad that it's over and done, or at least until the next episode. If you did enjoy this episode, let me know on the podcast Twitter at It's Pro Silly or in the Professionally Silly Pod group on Facebook. I would love to hear your feedback. It's super awesome that you humans want to join in on the silly. Oh, and if you want to get in there we and you got some stories that you want to share, it's scary, funny, embarrassing, paranormal, or maybe you just want to say, hey, I don't know your lives. Maybe you just want to vent. Email me at itsprofessionallysilly at gmail.com. You can also leave me a message on the Anchor app or my Google Voice number. 805-664-1828. And all that information is down in the show notes uh, below as well. Leave me a voicemail or send me a text message and I'll put you on the podcast unless you say otherwise. But I know this, I would love to hear from you. I love it. I also want to go ahead and uh, thank you guys for your support and coming back every week. 
it means so much to me that you're that you're hanging out with me right now. You know, we just talked about some murder together. That that bonds people, I feel like. We're bonded now. We're all friends. And if this is your first time listening, I hope that you decide to come back and join me every Friday as we get professionally silly. Uh, it's very rare that I do a true crime episode that is so dark and so just, ah, uh, just definitely makes you want to stay out of the cabin in the woods. But, you know, as I explained before, it, I just, I needed to get that out because it is still an open case and, you know, they could solve it tomorrow for all we know. It could happen any day. Don't forget to support this podcast by leaving reviews on whichever podcast directory that you're using, especially if it's Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. Uh, if you've got that, it's super important for the show. It's the only way that really, really helps my podcast grow. And I need your help in order for this podcast to do that. So leave five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes because it, it, it helps me grow. I need it. <laughs> Share this podcast with a friend and uh, let's have some fun together. This podcast is available on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. And uh, this week I had to do a PSC podcast shout out corner. I want to go ahead and shout out, I had to, had to, had to, shout out to Jensen and Holes, the Murder Squad podcast. Uh, I had to. I mean, I, I, they helped me a lot <laughs> with this particular episode. So we've got we've got retired cold case, cold case investigator Paul Holes and investigative journalist Billy Jensen taking deep dives into unsolved murders and, un, and unidentified remains and missing persons cases. Each week, listeners ride shotgun as Paul and Billy attempt to solve the crimes using a variety of methods from old school fashion detective work to advanced technologies, including familial DNA searches, uh, social media, geo-targeting, and, and maybe the most important of all, the skills of their listeners who send in tips and theories, becoming active members of the Murder Squad. Now, I, I listen to them on Spotify, but I know that they are available on other podcast platforms as well. And make sure you let them know that the Professionally Silly Podcast sent you. Now, as I always say, none of my PSCs really need a shout out from my tiny little podcast, but <laughs> a lot of them are doing extraordinarily well. And I, um, I really enjoy the podcast and I think that you will too. So I like to share them with you. So there's that. <laughs> I'm Paul Holes. And I'm Billy Jensen. Welcome to the Murder Squad. All of a sudden, I realized I was in serious trouble. Literally felt a cold wind blow through the car, and then he grabbed my arm. This is the last time anybody saw Denise and her daughter. And that's when he, you know, stopped dead in his track and got in my personal space, and he said that that's none of my damn business. What else has he done? You've been listening, watching, and reading true crime investigations for years. Now we want you to be part of our investigation. Starting April 1st, we want you to join our team. I've solved cases through crowdsourcing on social media. While in law enforcement, I've tracked down criminals for nearly three decades. We'll be diving into cases. Some are still looking for the killer. Others need to find victims. So you have to wonder, you know, how many may have survived their encounter. 
and others just need their name given back to them. Once you find out who she is, you can interview friends, you can interview family, show pictures, and say, would she hang out with this guy? And if you're able to provide them with information on that loved one, they never, never forget. Listen as we go through the case files and give our insights. All of the knowledge from all the true crime stories you've heard up to this point will now be put to good use. You know, the online sleuths can really prove themselves. They can provide a lot of assistance to law enforcement. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether that's Stitcher, Apple, or whatever, and you'll get episode one the moment it comes out. On April 1st, you become part of Jensen and Holes, the murder squad. enjoy the professionally silly podcast and you want to help out you can now support my silly content by making monthly donations now this will help the podcast continue to flow and help me move the silly forward you can now make monthly donations as low as 99 cents a month four dollars and 99 cents or 9.99 a month right here on the anchor app And if you have a little bit of a commitment issue or you don't have the Anchor app, there's always PayPal, www.paypal.me slash Amber Smiles Jones. Help me keep the silly flowing. Check out the show notes for more bonus information like my social media stuff. I've got TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and two YouTube channels, the Professionally Silly channel and the Paranormal Blacktivity channel. Check them out. They are awesome. Although I'm a bit biased. (laughs) All my personal and podcast social media information is there in the show notes below as well. Follow this podcast on Instagram and Twitter at It's Pro Silly. I posted some things pertaining to this episode on Instagram. So if you definitely don't want to miss that. And there is also a Facebook group page called the Professionally Silly Podcast Group. Share your opinions of my older and or newer episodes. Post silly true crime, paranormal memes, and let's get silly and have some fun. You can also snail mail me old school way in my P.O. Box. Hit me up at Amber Smiles Jones, P.O. Box 533, Lovejoy, Georgia 30250. Once again, I'm your audible boo thing, Amber Smiles Jones, and thank you so much for listening to the Professionally Silly Station here on Anchor FM, where I take my silliness seriously. Stay silly, loves. See you next time.